Alexa, what is the best podcast in the land? Here's pulling back the curtain podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. What's happening, people, and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppress. We give sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. Alexa, what is the baddest podcast in the land? Here's Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup, and that coffee is best two to 14 days after it's been roasted. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. What's happening, people, and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting you with the rawest opinion while give you straight up fact. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Chris. We give insight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. On this episode, we are joined by Julius Dorsey, owner of Chicago Fire Furniture Studio, as we pull back the curtain on his transition to entrepreneurship and much, much more. Chris, what's popping, baby? Man, Jules, man. How you been, man? How's, how's the week been? Oh, man. Just been busy, man. Uh, I do that shoveling. I know yeah, we've been right. blessed with uh, with wind, winter so far, with uh, mild winter, but could be some snow. So I was out there shoveling, and you know I got elderly neighbor neighbors next to me, so and I'm shoveling their snow too. So man, it's it's been busy, but but I've been good, man. No matter what, man, I'm still winning. So that's right, man. I, I treat like that shoveling, man. That's just like a little pre workout. So I'm like, shit, I'm all good with that. The thing is, man, every every winter, Jules, I always say, I got the I got the power leaf blower. So I got that. But I always say, man, okay. I'm gonna go ahead and give me one of those snow throwers, right? Mm-hmm. And I always say it. And then every time we get kind of close to the winter, I'm like, eh, well, it probably might not snow that much this year. I don't know if I want to invest in it. And then every time I'm out there shoveling that snow, I'm like, <laughs> man, I should have got that snow thrower. <laughs> that snowboard, yeah. You know, a neighbor across from me, he has it and he do the whole side. He just go up and down people's block. He go up and down the block on his side, though. On his side. Only on his side. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, that's doing enough. (laughs) Right. Right. So, yeah, I might, hey, I might take him up on it, man. Buy one and and just just walk down, walk down the whole block with it. Yep. I think one of these days I'm going to go ahead and just do it, man. Stop being cheap. (laughs) 
Yeah, because we, you know, we are getting older and, you know, well, we get older, you supposed make things supposed to get more easier. <laughs> yeah, right. I was out there huffing and puffing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, man, what happened to them kids who used to hustle when I was a shorty, man? They oh, mean, right. Man, where them kids at now? <laughs> yeah, they come ring your doorbell. Can I shove you a snow for a couple of dollars? Man, where they, hey, you be like, here, I give you five, give you 10. Right, go ahead out there, knock that out. Hit that by that garage too while you at it. It's funny, when they used to come to my house, all that does was was a reminder for my grandma that made me and my brother go out there and get that snow. She's like, no, I'll give you a dollar. But she, I got these grown boys up in here. They're going to go out there and get that snow, baby. And she's like, mm-hmm. go get that snow. <laughs> I was I'll like, take ass and get and do that snow. Uh-huh. And we ain't yes, get no grandma. dollars. No dollars. Damn. <laughs> I'm like, little snotty-nosed Roscoe got a dollar. We ain't get nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, my brother and I, we used to, yeah, we was the same way, man. We used to go out there and Shovel that snow, and we it was three of us, so we was having fun with it too, you know, throwing snow by each other, see yep. who can see who can do do the sidewalk the fastest and stuff like that. We make little games out of it, but that stuff ain't cute no more. When you get older, you're by yourself. It's dark. Yeah. It's cold. You're lonely. Yeah, you 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 ain't got no team no more. <laughs> no, there's no team. The band of yeah, brothers so, is just the band of one. <laughs> right. Man, so far so good, man. We thank God for this this mild winter so far, man. Yeah, man, we almost out of it. I mean, shit, February is knocking on the door. So, man, we, mm-hmm. we can just hold firm here. I think we're supposed to be getting some more snow beginning of the week, right? Right, yeah. We can't complain too much, man. No, no, we can't. One thing I was going to say, man, just from this week and by the time this episode launches, it'll be, you know, obviously a few days later. But this past week, we mourned uh, a year ago, Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and those seven mm-hmm. other uh, people who climbed aboard that helicopter and they lost their lives. Jules, man, I tell you one thing. It doesn't feel like it's been a year since that day oh, uh, no. when they all passed. No, it hasn't. Man, press, it hurts. This is a person you looked at coming in the league out of high school, and you see him progressing and transforming to the man he is now, and to see his life been taken like that is just, ew, it hurts, man. And and then that part, and also seeing that his daughter left with oh. him, and then you saw the promise in her, and she was like a little miniature Kobe. The mannerisms, when you saw her on the court, you're like, damn, she's a little killer. <laughs> damn, right. that's you little see, mama. Right. That's <laughs> little mama, right? Man. It's hard, man. It's it's unfair. His resume on basketball. I mean, this brother here, 18-time NBA All-Star, five-time champion, two-time gold medalist. He had an Oscar for his short film, Dear Basketball. Mm-hmm. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, posthumous, off the court, loving husband, married to uh, Vanessa for over 20 years. You know, he talked to Maria Shriver about being a father. That That was one of his, that is his greatest accomplishments. Is his daughters being a father was his greatest accomplishment for Kobe. He exuded excellence. He was black excellent. He was Man. somebody you can just just look to and just get inspired by. Absolutely, one hundred percent correct. I think the only thing that I wanted to add was just the interview when he talked about being a girl dad. That's always something that's going to resonate with me. And mm. I, I, I looked at that and I said. He was proud. You know, they would always ask him, you know, would you want a son? And he was like, no, I'm good with my with my girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one thing that I really respected, you, you brought up his resume when he played in the league. The thing that impressed me even more about him was his second act when he was doing with that basketball academy. 
what he was trying right. to do for women's sports. Right, right. That to me was where I saw, man, we would have probably saw an even greater Kobe and it was just all snuffed out very, very short. And like man. you said, man, it's so sad, man. It breaks my heart, man. Like this week, the day of, you know, the anniversary of that, and I hate even using that type of terminology, but I was just like in a weird funk that whole entire day. For me, when I look at Kobe, to me, it was just more, much more than about him being a basketball player. It's the things that you brought up, a husband, a father, and just the greatness that I was seeing in him in his second act, the Oscar that you said that he he won. This right. guy, everything he touched, bro, it just seemed like he was going to do it to the best of his ability, and he was going <laughs> to just go to the next level. The legacy he left, I just think that he just truly inspired. A piece of what Kobe was trying to do is what I want to bring to this podcast every time we turn this mic on, bro, because he was just relentless at what he did. Me and you both. Me and you both. He, and he showed that from either, like you, like you was talking about, from basketball court, from his personal life, to the next level where he was going. He was, everything he touched, it turned to gold. I mean, his brother here was so headstrong and so focused and mentally tough. And he had an interview about, somebody asked him about greatness to him. And he talked about the most important thing in life is how your career moves touches those around you and how it carry forward to the next generation. Then you realize that will make true greatness. And that's what you just said about what we're doing. You know, our platform here is to inspire others. Because we have people like Kobe to look up to, to inspire us. This is why we do it, to inspire the next generation, to leave that legacy. Kobe, physically, he's not here, but he's always around. And he did not die in vain. Those, uh, those seven others, Gigi, did not die in vain. Their legacy will live on. And like you say, it hurts, but we, you know, such is life. And we're going to move forward. And we're just going to remember what he had left. When he left his legacy, we're going to remember that. And that's what's going to keep us, keep us moving, keep us going. Absolutely, man. Because when, when you think about being better and improving upon something, embracing the storm and having the perfect and the right mentality and perspective about life and just trying to be better, that's mm -hmm. all of what Kobe Bryant personified to me. And that's mm -hmm. why I think a legacy like his is always going to uh, live forever. So, man, yes, rest in peace, Kobe and Gigi and all of the passengers that were aboard that helicopter. May you all have eternal peace. We also lost another great one. We we had a lot of loss uh, this week, Jules. Uh, Hank Aaron, mm -hmm. Hammer and Hank, hey, right? Hammer and Hank, man. You know Hank Aaron, man. We he, we came out. We came a little after he retired, but still, this brother here was uh, <laughs> another person you can look at. He was coming up through the struggles too. Like I say, he was getting death threats for those because they didn't want him breaking Babe Ruth home run record as a baseball player. You have to be focused. Now, I never played the sport uh, uh, organized. I, you know, in the backyard or something like that. But to have that concentration to be mentally tough, but also going through what he was going through, that might have to, he had to be 10 times as mentally tough because of the outside interference. I will say this, man, Jules. When, it, when, when I think of uh, Hank Aaron's legacy, it's going to be always attached to 715, which is mm -hmm. the, the, record. the record. And then also... 755 or whatever the hell Barry Bonds total ended up with, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, let me ask you something, Chris. Yeah. Barry Bonds. We counting it or? I say this, man. Uh, I say he, he should get in the Hall of Fame. I okay. know that it's been a lot of controversy surrounding that with, with Barry, but mm -hmm. man, Barry was still a hell of a player. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, sir. 
I don't care how big how big his head ballooned up to when he started injecting himself, but <laughs> that man was looking like the zoo from the Jetsons out there. Wow. I'm like, oh dude. Hey man, people have to go back and look and see who, who Kazoo is on the Jetson. <laughs> you Google it and you you will then laugh your ass off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Boy, you a fool, man. Um, but no, dude, like with Hank Aaron, bro, to be honest, he's an all-time great. But if you look at his career and the way people talk and look at him, he's still so underrated and what he was able to do. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because I'm like, this guy had the home run record. Mm-hmm. And how you talked about how he had to endure the death threats. And I still remember the, looking at the video when we were kids, when he hit that home run to break the record and he's rounding the bases and those two guys run from the right. audience. And he didn't know if they was trying to put hands on him or what. So you saw he was trying to like push him away from him right. so he could finish his home run try. And that's in that sense, I'm like, that was such a momentous moment. But it also was like saying like, well, what are these guys doing? Are they happy right. or are they trying to attack him? <laughs> so you you didn't right. know, right? Yeah, because you don't know, right? Because he was getting them threat threats, and they hell, where was security? How you let two dudes go on the on the field and just run up to a player? Man, it's that white privilege, bro. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have ran up on Babe Ruth like that. Uh-uh. <laughs> but one of the things that you brought up about the death threats and stuff that he was getting, people don't even realize this, and this was something that I had read a few years ago about his story for four years. He required a police escort and an FBI detail for not only himself, but his entire family as he was getting closer and closer to Babe Ruth's record. And that's Mm -hmm. insane. We're Mm -hmm. talking about baseball. We're talking about the fact that people were so upset that he was getting ready to break a white man's home run record that they wanted to kill him. They said that at one point, his daughter was the target of a kidnapping plot. (laughs) Like, we're talking about baseball. Yeah, we're talking about baseball. <laughs> right. We know the great Bambino. He's always going to be the great Bambino to a lot of folks. But records are made to be broken. Jordan was number three in the uh, scoring list. But now, you know, he's number what? He's number five now. Yeah, he's got bumped down. Yep. He got bumped down. So records are made to be broken, people. The thing that I always, when I think of a Hank Aaron, Jules, I just appreciate his grace and the way that he kind of approached things. He did everything the right way. He pulled himself up by the bootstraps, and we talk mm-hmm. about that a lot on this podcast of just having that pride and knowing your worth. But if mm-hmm. you look at it, he taught himself how to play the game of baseball. He put in the hard work. He didn't complain. He played 23 seasons in the MLB and never once went on the disabled list. Iron Man. Dude, right? Got no special favors, no handouts. The thing that I'm going to say, though, about America with this situation is he had a lot of dignity. But... Why look at dignity in a different way than maybe some other people may look at it? I think when you see Black people in history and when they say he was a dignified person, to me, it comes off as a compliment, but it's also condescending at the same time. And I think when they attach that to him, him being basically affable to people and not basically taking his situation and being angry about it, but how he rose above everything, right? Mm -hmm. But- You have to realize, if he had for four years had to have a security detail, the FBI detail, how hostile that was for him, not to even just try to live his day-to-day life, but play a game. You know, you have players out here in this league now that will sit out games to rest and do all these other different things. That's a story that we could get into another time. But this man getting death threats, 
and he's playing the game that he loves. That's the thing that I'll think about a Hank Aaron. And not, let's not forget, he still have records nobody in touch yet. With all that, Prez, you hit it, my, oh, man, my God, right on the head when you talk about at least today, and, and according to uh, uh, when we look at Hank Aaron. No comparison. No, no. His brother, he went, he, he had a job. He loved to play the game. Like I said, he, he couldn't play the game. He couldn't play the game in high school because he was black. So he had to self-talk. And to be one of the greatest ba- baseball players ever, and didn't even stop there. After he retired, he got into the front office for the yep. Braves. So we talk about Kobe being an inspiration. Hank Aaron, an inspiration. Yep. And you also got to think about it, too. Jackie Robinson. He basically laid the blueprint. And that, and right. so that's what I was going to when I was basically saying about the dignified mm-hmm. response, because that's kind of how they painted Jackie Robinson. But to me, when I looked at those guys, those guys had to deal with so much bullshit that their other counterparts didn't have to deal with. Those guys were able to just play baseball, live their lives, have fun. Jackie right. Robinson, Hank Aaron, and many of these other African-American ball players had to deal with death threats, had to be dealing with basically right. treated like a second-class citizen, right? So when I see right. basically people in the media saying, oh, well, Hank Aaron and Jackie Robinson were very dignified. To me, I look at that as like, that's just code for basically saying that they just took the punches and they accepted the behavior that was given to them. But I looked at it as they rose above. Right. And they actually showed you, this is what we as a people are able to do. We're resilient. And that's why Jules and I always on this podcast say, we as a race have to look within and realize that we come from greatness. And these guys like Jackie Robinson and Hank Aaron are examples of that, of how they rose above the bullshit that they had to deal with to still perform at a high level. They have to. In order to play this game and, and, and be successful and lay the blueprint, they had to. They had to endure all the things that was being thrown at them and and do their jobs on the field, mm-hmm. on the court. I was watching Jackie Robinson's story with Chaswick, and something happened, and Jackie got ejected. And the owner come to Jackie said, you're, you're medicine. Dude, these players here were medicine, man. They... Mm-hmm. And you kind of look at today's athletes and was like, come on now, we, we, we come from a stronger stock than this. Our ancestors and the people that came before, they paved the way so you won't have to endure this, that what they endure. You're going to have bumps and roads. You're going to have obstacles and stuff. We always talk about on the show. You can't be weak, man. You, you can't be weak. Because I'll tell you one thing, Hank Aaron was not that. No. He, he was not that at all. Rest in peace, Hammer and Hank. Legend. Legend. Yes, sir. Legend. Man, speaking of another legend. Mm-hmm. The queen, Cicely Tyson, we also lost her. She passed away. Mm-hmm. And that was another tough loss because for me, that was an actress that I remember that my grandmother and my mother, they loved her. you know. And for me, it was more of the TV films for her that I really enjoyed with Cicely Tyson's work. I don't know like kind of how you felt about her, but I thought she was a phenomenal, phenomenal actress. I can remember one Cicely Tyson film that I always enjoyed watching. Her role in A Woman Called Moses, the Harriet Tubman story. Yes. Now, that came out in 78. So I was a little boy when I was watching it. And I was just like, wow. She skipped out on a lot of roles because a lot of things she just wouldn't do. She and, talked about how it had to mean something. Very important. Yes. Right. Like yes. these roles had to mean something for it so she can do. And I thought that was excellent because this is Hollywood we're talking about. Yep. We're talking about getting paid. We're talking about fame, fortune. She, she can care less about all that. Well, you, you realize, Jules, that 
she actually missed out on a decade of, of performing in movies because she didn't want to participate in any of those black exploitation movies. Because remember how in the 60s, oh, right. those mm-hmm. became really popular? She didn't do any of that shit. She said, nope. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. And you know what? I ain't gonna lie. I enjoy a lot of black chasing like films. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> man, Sisley, Sisley's rolling black? around in her grave right now listening to you say that. I'm sorry, miss. I'm sorry, miss Sisley. I'm sorry, Miss Lee, but Blackula? Come on, people. <laughs> you, your ass. <laughs> but, Cooley High? Come on, people. I, I love Cooley High. I don't, I don't, so I view that one a little differently. I love Cooley High. Okay, all right. Yeah, my boy Cochise, he was the man. But no, what, the one point that you made about Cicely that I thought was really important is the fact that she was cognizant of the roles that she played. So she refused to play drug addicts prostitutes, mm-hmm. a maid, Prostitute, or right. anything that she thought would be demeaning towards a black woman. And I think that that's important because in this day and age where it seems like people values, they'll do anything for money and they forget that, hey, you know what? Just because Hollywood's going to uh, assign a check to you, bro, you are a man. So act as such. Or in the case of Sicily, I'm a strong woman. I am not going to mm-hmm. be a maid. I am not going to play in these roles just because that's what you think that I should be. And that's not the image that I want to portray out here. And I respect oh, that. Right. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you have to. This lady here, she had a creed. Uh-huh. She had she had her own rules, and she did not break it for nobody. For not even, not, <laughs> you probably gave that woman at that time a million dollars, and she wasn't going to do it. No, she wasn't going to do it. Uh-uh. And that speak volumes. Yep. Speak volumes. But you know, one of the things that I think about when I think about her movies, because you mentioned that one, a woman called Moses. Yeah. I also, in her in Roots, and also when she was in the Wilma Rudolph story, any role that she right, that right. she played, she grabbed the hold of it with tenacity, dude. Like when she spoke her parts, you like felt the pain in her mm. words. I'm like, boy, like especially mm. her roots. She invited them characters. Dude, yeah. exactly. She invited them characters. Yes. Yeah. Man, right. and that's what man, <laughs> that's what makes a great actress, a great actor, a great actress. You have to do your homework and stuff to know what there was about and stuff. And then you put your own spin to it. But like you said, when she took on them roles, she bring it to life, man. You, you're you like, man. <laughs> yep. And when she was in, in Roots, I remember like seeing that when I was when I was younger and not really understanding everything that I was seeing. So then and later in life, I watched it again. And then I like put myself in, the, in her story, right? And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, the power of her delivery. And I just said, man, this woman is a phenomenal actress and she's going to be mm-hmm. missed. I mean, huh. You talk about just being an example. You have to look at like Viola Davis and and some of these other like this leading black Mm -hmm. actresses out here. (laughs) Cicely led the path for them. It's like how we talked about with Jackie Robinson, you know, basically giving that blueprint for Hank Aaron and any other uh, African-American ball player. Look at the path that Cicely Tyson laid for these actresses to follow her. It's what was what I talked about with Kobe. You got to leave it for the next generation. And leave it better than you found it. Man, I'm a bit choked up over here. Man, wow. But I would say this, man. For all the individuals that we talked about that have have passed this week, I know Jules, I know I definitely will take a piece of everything that they brought in their individual crafts. Those are examples that all of us can lead in our professional and personal careers going forward. Because these people all, to me, demonstrated one common thing. And it was basically perseverance. Mm-hmm. Each one of these individuals. And right now, in these times that we have in 2021, these times right now, 
perseverance is going to be the way that we're going to get through these times. And I think that that's going to be the thing for 2021 for everybody to keep front in mind. You know, one thing, man, Prez, I'm real happy about. I'm real happy that Cicely, she, they, you know what, in 2018, they gave her an honorary Oscar, man. Yes, because she never got one. She never got one, man. And I'm glad that they did because this woman right here definitely deserved it. And she got to be here to get it. So I have, yeah. we always talk about people not getting their flowers when they're here. Well, at least she got to have that honor before she passed on. Rest in peace, Cicely. Yeah, Cicely. Thank rest you. in peace to all of you. I know we're going to keep doing what we're going to be doing here, Press. We're going to be that voice and for the next generation. And, and man, I'm just looking forward to, you know, progressing, progressing with you on the show and, and better endeavors and, and everything, man. And, you know, we want to be where, where people talking about, hey, man, that Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, Prez and Jules, them brothers there, they laid, they laid the way for a lot of us. Hey, and that's what we're striving for. I'm looking forward to on this journey, man. Absolutely, fam. Absolutely. Well, all right, Jules, man. Well, in the spirit of uh, transition, so this is going to be the second part audience of our discussion on people that we have been fascinated by their stories of transformation. We are joined today by my brother, Mr. Julius Dorsey, pulling back the curtain with us today. Julius, talk to him. How you doing there, fam? Oh, wow, wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you for the intro, man. I'm really excited to be here. I've listened to a number of episodes from this podcast, and I feel excited to be a part of it, man. How's everything going on that side? We blessed over here, man. And, and thank you so much, man. This is the second season of the podcast. And, you know, me and Jules, you know, we, we talked to our audience about this season being like a very important season for us because we wanted to give back. And this season has all been about for us just giving that nuggets, educating and just making sure that, you know, we're giving people some food for thought right now, because especially in these times, man, <laughs> things are crazy out here. So we want to kind of be more Absolutely. of a solution <laughs> to add it to the problem. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Man, so with that being said, man, I mean, last week we had a brother, Malcolm Riley, on the show, drop gym after gym in regards to his personal journey. But man, for you, you know, we go back to 2010-ish, I want to say. This brother here I wanted to have on the show because not only has he had phenomenal transitions, but even during the course of the pandemic, he had pivots within a pivot <laughs> to kind of evolve himself as, a, as an entrepreneur. So I wanted to have a discussion with you, Julius, and just, man, have you talked to our audience about your story, man. Tell us a little bit about you as you were coming up and kind of what were some of your aspirations were when you were a shorty. Yeah, man, absolutely, man, absolutely. Well, a lot. first off, I am actually uh, came up in Cleveland, Ohio. I didn't come out to Chicago until I was, you know, I'm almost 20 years old, but I came up in Cleveland and... You know, I got really involved with art at kind of a young age, and it was kind of like a means to an end for me, you know? Like, I was kind of a shy kid, and art was kind of an avenue where I could express myself without having a whole lot of people judge me. And I can do my own thing, and people just have to take it or leave it. And that kind of empowered me at a young age. So I kind of built my identity through art, even though I was doing sports and other stuff like that. The art kind of stuck. And it was just, you know, as a young kid, you know, I wasn't really like locking in on any sort of uh, medium or anything like that. At that point, I'm just kind of experimenting with, you know, self-expression, you know, using using different art tools. And that it just stuck with me, man, all the way through through high school and like all the way to the present and what I'm currently doing. I think just kind of a way of thinking about how to approach the world as something to explore and 
look at it from a different vantage point. Just the way my brain works, I'm always questioning things around me. And that's that's just kind of what led to what I'm currently doing. Okay. So when you was, uh, you know, entering like your college time, mm-hmm. what was your plan when you were kind of looking at yourself? Because I know you do have that artistic background. When you were in school, were you thinking that the arts was going to be your way in life or did you have a different path at that point in time in life? At that point, man, I was I was excited about the arts, but I didn't necessarily see a path forward with it without having something to support it. I knew of artists that were successfully, you know, living with without that the stigma of the, the starving artist paradigm, you know, but they, they were kind of abstract, you know, in the distant people that I thought were just the exceptions to the rule. So I, I went forward, you know, thinking about following my father's footsteps and going into, into business. Not that those are mutually exclusive, but at the time I viewed art as being like art and then business as being business, that you support your art with your business income. So I went to school, you know, in, in pursuit of a degree in, in business. That didn't go anywhere at all. <laughs> you know, not only did I didn't have the grades for it, man, but... Also, I was just bored out of my mind, you know, like I was sitting in there like this is not what I want to do. And I ended up drifting back towards my passion, you know, so it just kind of overwhelmed. It was was meant then. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, people can just go and explore different options. But, you know, that true calling, you'll come back to it. One hundred percent. Good. So you mentioned about your your father. So your Mm -hmm. father, he was an entrepreneur or just was he in the corporate space? He was an entrepreneur. Yeah, he was an entrepreneur. He started his business around 87 and uh, he's still running with it, man. But prior to that, he was in corporate, branched off into starting his own marketing firm. And so at that early age, then you were exposed a little bit to some of that entrepreneurial background just from your pops. Was that some of those things where you did you take anything from that experience? Quite a bit, just because I never knew him to be somebody that had to wait on somebody else to do whatever he wanted to do. You know what I mean? He was kind of like a get up and go do it if you want it type guy. And I mean, I was, you know, exposed to that my whole childhood. That's the only thing I knew. I mean, I would even go to meetings with him. I'd be in the boardroom, five years old. I'm falling asleep at the table. He's doing his presentations on the whiteboard in front of like clients. (laughs) I would be falling asleep, man. I was bored in there, but I used to go down to the office with him. So I was definitely influenced by that. And I think that that's an important piece right there because Jules and I always talk about support systems on the podcast. And I really like that story, Julius, in the sense that even though you weren't really paying attention because you were such a, a young kid, that still is something you even remember. You remember basically your pops doing that whiteboarding discussion and you probably could think back to when you actually got in your career when you started presenting to people, right? And it just kind of like at an early age, you were exposed to it, whether you basically were taking anything from it at that time, it was still an environment that you were around. And I think that that's always important, you know, to have that exposure. 100%. What would you say your biggest breakthrough was? So, I mean, obviously when you mentioned that, you know, the arts was like your passion, you tried to go to the college route through the business program, Mm -hmm. that didn't work out. So what was that breakthrough that said, you know what, this is my path and this is what I'm going to do. And this is like where I'm going to go basically full throttle. Honestly, man, it was a series of hard lessons, man, that kind of, thrust me forward into like kind of like growing up and taking responsibility for what I thought I wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. I was just kind of, I was kind of just floating around, you know, I'm like 18 graduating high school, you know, 19 in undergrad. I was the youngest in the family, man. And like my mother and like the people around me as a kid in a way kind of rallied around me and made it where I didn't have to experience a whole lot of consequences. And they created a space where I was just kind of able to do my art and just kind of slide through the cracks and just like get away with stuff that like maybe my older sister wasn't. 
And, you know, it's cool when you're a kid, but when you get to being a young adult, get in the real world and you encounter things that you can't, you know, rely on other people to fix, you know, and I just kept colliding with life, man. Like, I mean, I wasn't into some crazy stuff, man, but it was painful, you know, experiences, man. It just, you know, kind of kept waking me up, waking me up. What am I really doing here? Like, am I on the right path? You know, those sort of questions you ask when you're trying to find out who your identity is at a young age. And so it wasn't until quite a few of those experiences, man, where I actually was able to like take hold of actually what I really thought my path was. That was, I was up into my twenties at that point, around like 23. And that kind of overlaps when, when we met and kind of my transition in corporate and then ultimately out of corporate to start my own business. I mentioned earlier in this segment that, you know, we, you and I do go way back and I would just say this, one of the things that I wanted to talk to the audience about real quick about this guy here, Julius, the first time I, I met this guy, I kind of was just like, I don't even want to be meeting with him right now because it was after hours. I had been working all day. And uh, at the time I was a sales manager uh, at Career Builder and he was coming in for an interview. And I think the way that they, and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, Julius, but because of your work schedule, I think you were only available during like certain time frame, right? For the interview. At that point, I already have an attitude because I've been at work all day. And it's like like 6.30. And I'm like, man, who's this prima donna making me have to stay late for this interview? <laughs> but, then, but then when he showed up, man, I mean, he was sharp. And I looked at him and I said, all right, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my mentality, man. I'm, I'm going to let this brother, you know, say I'm going to let him cook, right? So he sits down with me and we get like two minutes into the interview. And I just like closed the pad that I have. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even doing this normal interview with this dude. Wow, bro, you're taking me back. (laughs) (laughs) So remember what I said was, where is it that you're trying to go in life? Wow. Yep. Because for our audience, Julius at this time was doing door-to-door sales. That's one of the hardest damn jobs that anybody could have. And when people think about salespeople, that's the job that they think about. And that shit is not glorious. (laughs) This is what he was coming in off of. Yeah, I remember that, man. I remember now. Yeah, I was, at that point, man, I was... I was hot, man, because I was in there getting in the trenches, uh, going door to door every day. At the time, I had just had my second child, mm. and you're living off like all commission, door to door sales income, one income. I remember, man, you you talking about like, look, man, like you painted a picture for me, man, about what my life could look like if I were to step over into that world you were in, and you know, how that would change my family. I just remember grabbing onto that vision, man, about just having a world where I wasn't struggling. (laughs) Out here trying to, you know, make ends meet, going door to door and everything else. It was a cold call situation. So you just popped up at people's place of business, middle of the day, no call, no nothing, man. You just bang on the door, boom, you walk in there, do a corny elevator pitch to get people off, (laughs) off, tell them what you're selling. And like, man, you got like 80 out of like 90 doors slammed in your face, man. You know what I'm and I was downtown, like alternating floors. I would go on and try to die security, man, and all that. Like it was, it was a hustle, man. I did well enough to not starve to death, but that's about all I did, man. Mm-hmm. And so like meeting, meeting friends was like, yo, like this guy's painting a totally different picture. He's talking about like, I can actually make that and I can like not walk around the city all day. Like, mm-hmm with my like phone book catalog of office supplies, you know, like. So the one thing I wanted to let our audience know about too is not only was it just the painting of the picture, but Julius also was in the interview process at other companies because 
they probably saw the same thing that I saw. I saw somebody that was sharp and articulate, but he hadn't had access to the right opportunity yet, right? Because he was still kind of figuring out what he wanted to do, right? One of the things that I really enjoyed about the discussion that he and I had in that first interaction was just the fact that this was a young kid that was hungry and he was trying to provide for his family, right? And that hit mm-hmm. home with me. And so what it what did for me as somebody that walked into this interview, not wanting to do the interview, <laughs> but I walked away from it like saying, you know what? Even if this brother does not come to work for this company that I work at, because I'll tell you, Julius, my discussion with you was less about you coming to career, but it was more about you basically figuring out what you wanted to do with your next step, right? And figuring out your path ahead and getting out of that door-to-door sales situation because that's, you know, and and no offense to anybody that has to do that kind of stuff, but that's not an easy job. And there's obviously better better ways to to make your money. (laughs) Yes, Lord. (laughs) Absolutely. For me, um, the situation with you was, it wasn't a typical interview process. It was more of, I'm looking at basically me when I was younger, right? Looking for direction in the corporate space and knowing that I had mentors that kind of helped guide me through the process. So when I saw Julius, I said, you know what? This is somebody, man, that needs a little professional guidance. Mm -hmm. What happened was from that situation, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he might've felt comfortable enough with our conversation that he was really ready to move forward and he stopped looking at those opportunities. But I'll let you tell that story, Julius, but I just want to kind of paint the picture for the audience like just kind of how that early interaction started. No, that's 100% right, man. Like you pretty much provided a, a framework for me to think about my future. The other interviews I were in, they were similar to the job I was doing, man, just different contexts. Pretty much 100% commission. They got nothing to lose because if you don't make any money, they don't lose any money. So it's like they lose time trying to train you, but that's it. So. This opportunity was a definite pivot from that um, on both ends, because I think when somebody's paying you, that brings a certain accountability. Like you need to perform. I'm putting this money in your pocket, you better be performing, you know? And also this guy that was interviewing me, you know, I'm like, he seemed sharp, but if I like take this job, I'm going to be having to ask him. It's kind of like no nonsense. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 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 you know what I'm saying? So it was like on both sides, I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm going to answer this guy, but like, you know, <laughs> but you know, the, the opportunity to have somebody like take me under the wing and like become something else, kind of getting that next transition mm-hmm. to life. And that was important. I mean, I was a young, young parent. You know, I was, you know, barely out of undergrad, had two kids. I had kids while in undergrad, as a matter of fact, and I wasn't that far out of that. So, I mean, it was just like, wow, man, I need to figure out this ain't life here. You know, what can I do next? And that's, that's, what, that's what you provided. So, yeah, man. And, and, I'll, and I'll say this, Jules, about him. When the first moment when he came on the floor, right, mm-hmm. and he, 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 could, he could probably tell this story better than, better than I can. But I remember the same guy that I saw in the interview, the hungry you know, individual that I'm like, okay, he gonna come in here chomping at the bit. What'd you do, Julius, your first week, man? There, <laughs> choke, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? Like, wait, wait, what? What happened? They basically choke, man, because it's like, okay, yeah, I was hungry. You know what I'm saying? Like, I definitely wanted wanted the opportunity, man. But this was a totally different environment, man. Like, you gotta understand. Like, I was coming from a door to door sales environment where I was by myself, self-governing, you know, the whole day. If you don't make money, it's because, you know, you didn't do your own thing right. But it was really, really not a whole lot of accountability. You know what I'm saying? Like, this Mm -hmm. was totally different. This was like on the phones, like with, like actually like dial quotas and like somebody making sure you hit that dial quota and like, you better come in here and make it happen type thing. 
And it was like, everybody around me was like, they sounded so confident on the phone. I haven't, I hadn't developed my confident phone voice yet or my confidence period. So it's like, I'm sitting around here, like listening to these guys, like, you know, make sales over the phone and do this, that, and the third. I'm sitting over here, like, I'm trying to hunch down in my queue so nobody can hear me talking. (laughs) 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 I'm like, man, these guys hear me talking, man. I'm going to. I can't keep this like facade, but for so long, when they hear me talking, they're gonna be like, you know, so it was definitely, it was a shock, man. And that shock, I don't know how long that went on. I felt like it was kind of a series of like, oh shit moments, you know what I mean? Like, hey, man, yeah. you better step your game up. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know? I, I, I would say this, um, and, and this is why I wanted our audience to listen to this, because a lot of times, uh, Julius and, and Jules too, mm-hmm. you'll hear people and you'll they'll say, you know, I went through all this adversity, this is where I am today. But people don't spend a lot of time focusing on the struggles that they had. And from when I met Julius, he was in it, man. And when I say in it, he was in the midst of a lot of different storms. And I think the biggest okay. storm that I noticed with him was the fight that he was fighting against himself. He's an analytical cat, but he's an overthinker. And that was the battle that I thought, for me, was the toughest hurdle that he had to overcome. And I wanted you to kind of give some, some background about that, Julius, because I thought that was your biggest, once you cleared that, then it was, you were just, you were ready to go. You, you were out there, you're, you were soaring like an eagle after that. <laughs> you hit it on the head, man. It goes back to our earlier discussion about the art background and everything. Ultimately, I ended up going to an art school here in Chicago, SAIC. And yep. you got to understand, that's a school with no grades and no majors. That's the exact sort of school somebody like me looks for because it's like there's no accountability. It's set up for you to go in there and just like look at the world in whatever way you want and just question everything. Mm-hmm. And everybody that goes there is similar in that mentality. And so going from that to an environment where sales is like, it's a sales is a structured environment. You know, you have an end game, you have an objective. It's like you have a singular goal and you get held accountable for reaching it. I was coming in there with this like abstract sort of way of thinking about the world, man. And like wanting to question everything that I was doing, whether or not it benefited me personally. That's a tough one to crack right there. You know, when you've been thinking like that for so long and then like suddenly it's like, look, here's the destination. Here's the tools you need to get there. Now go. You know what I mean? Like totally different. Like ultimately I found it to be a strength, but it was just like coming in the door, man. Like, wow, man, that was like, that was the biggest culture shock I could have, I could have experienced. Just wound up, man. Wound too tight question. And then you have the whole self-esteem issues as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, do I sound all right on the phone? Like this and that. And that just leads to a hundred other questions, 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 questions. I think I got a nickname, man. So actually <laughs> funny thing is that the previous company I was at, one of the guys nicknamed me Socrates, man. <laughs> Socrates. <laughs> like, and it's funny. He ultimately ended up coming over to career builder as well, man. But it was oh, that man. type of thing, man. Like overthinking, overthinking. Over. I'm the guy with the with the sketchbooks full of writing. You know what I'm saying? Just random thoughts. And now I'm in the middle of a sales environment where it's a bunch of guys. It's just like, there's the target. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Hunt and you know kill. Right. <laughs> exactly, man. Exactly. And but that was man, Ju- But man, Julius, that's big of what you were saying because in any occupation, any field you go into, you're gonna feel those. You're going to get that sense where you're trying to perform, you want to do your best, but it's so big right now because it's so new and you want to get it right away, expedient results. But 
things you just got to go through to and to learn the job. I'm a um, police officer, so we get a lot of new recruits, a new uh, police officers that's coming in, and their biggest thing is they want to go and get the guns, get the bad guys, and get the dope and stuff. And I have to tell them, okay, it's going to come. Believe me, mm-hmm. it's going to fall in your lap. That's how that's how it's going to be. So just slow down and take a look at everything, right. you know. And that was one of the things I, I try to tell a lot of people. Man, you can make it to whatever you want it to be. Slow down and assess everything, and you're going to perform better. Your story there on how you you came in career builder struggling, and then with the guidance of prayers and other people, you was able to soar like an eagle. And those those things we want our audience to get. One thing too, I wanted Julius to actually talk through that because that is a, a a good point there, Jules. Can you tell our audience a little bit about some of the things that you did behind the scenes to then make that improvement? Because it happened really quickly, in my opinion, because okay. he wouldn't have been sitting in that seat and fucking up uh, for a month or two. <laughs> <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened. <laughs> man, it was a series of things that that happened, man. Nothing mentioned what I mentioned earlier, man, is like, like this series of like colliding with like difficult experiences, man. It's just after a while, your ego's like, man, dag, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be like pulling up the rear with this thing, man. I was an athlete as, as a young youngster as well. So it's like, I'm not about to be the weakest, weakest link, man. That's just yeah. not, you know, <laughs> this is not going to go okay. down. So, like I had a series of experiences for when I started attacking my deficiencies. Like, so I'm, I'm a real a big proponent of like self-work, you know, like they had books in the uh, office, man. I was reading through those books, like I mean, I was reading a book a week, just like flying through these books. And I'm still on that pace, honestly, man. Like, I'm, I just attack deficiencies. Like, you know, the areas that I just can't live with, I got to attack them, man. I got to get better. I got to strengthen those areas. So I started doing that a lot. I was constantly going to one-on-one meetings, which was basically just a, a time where you could go and talk with an advisor, somebody like Trez or one of the other managers in the, in the division that would sit down with you and you could just pick their brain and like talk through all your issues and whatever you wanted mm-hmm. to like, discuss to try to overcome deficiencies. That was a huge thing for me, man, because I was able to start seeing myself through the paradigm of people that had been multiple years and like multiple income brackets above me. And so I started seeing myself like little by little, seeing myself differently. One thing that I did learn with door-to-door sales was about just being mentally tough. So I did pull some of those skills over and I started writing on my bathroom mirror in the morning about what I wanted to do in terms of hitting my monthly quota. First thing I saw in the morning was my monthly quota on the bathroom mirror. It was a process of just kind of like brainwashing myself to, to adapt to the environment. And that little by little started going, going, going. And the thing that really actually pushed me over the top was like the brilliance of Trez, the way he leveraged the other members, uh, members of the team to push me to the next level. And in particular, man, it was one kid on our team named um, Tony Parker, man. This kid was just like a stud on the phone. He was just yes, confident, yeah. able to just sort of adapt to whatever, he, whoever he was talking to. He had this certain confidence, man, that just seemed like it came from a source I, I didn't know how to access. Parker started picking at me, man. Come <laughs> in, like, like, hey Dorsey, you like call me, call me Dorsey. Hey Dorsey, you gonna sell something today? Hey Dorsey, motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting over there, yeah, man. Right. I was sitting over there fuming, man, in my in my cubicle, man, thinking like seeing red, like you gonna sell something today? Sell something? I'm like, man, I'm not. Look, man, you about to just talk to me like I'm a sucker. You know what I'm saying? So, there you go. Like, look, man, I'm not about to be that guy. So, like that. <laughs> Actually, whatever discomfort I had of being on the phone, man, mm-hmm. that just evaporated with that, man. Because I was getting clowned, man. <laughs> 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 so all that knowledge I already had is sort of just that was activated. From there, man, I was just 
I was just determined, man, to to excel. And at that point, man, that was the catalyst. What I didn't know at the time was that Prez got in his ear on the low behind my back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this dude instigated that whole scenario. At that point, he was watching me and knew me. And that was the brilliance of Prez, man, just being able to like kind of like leverage resources to kind of get people to do what they need to do. You know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, that really, man, that was... That was hilarious looking back on it. Parker, that's he's a solid guy, man. But at the time, <laughs> take him out, man. So you mentioned oh, a series of uh, you mentioned a series of, of obstacles that you had, OD. And so one of the things for me when I looked at that whole time with you at Career Builder, I knew though, and we would have these discussions in our one-on-ones. I said, you know what? I know this is the end game for you. And I said, that's why I was asking you where you were trying to get to in life. Because I viewed that time and you picking up those sales skills, I knew that that was something that you would be able to take with you in the future. Because I knew all the different stories that you told me about when you first came to Chicago. Remember when you told me you used to do, you used to go down to Michigan Avenue and you would paint those bottles and you would sell them to the tourists. So there was a lot of different things about you that I said, no, man, this cat's different. And so I knew for you that there was going to be a bigger goal for you in life. I knew the sales thing was just going to be a a, kind of like a stepping stone for where you're really going to get to in life. But you mentioned some of the obstacles. Would you say that the obstacles that you experienced, you know, kind of trying to figure out your path when you had the success at Career Builder, were, were those obstacles the thing that got you to take this next step to go into entrepreneurship? Or what led you to that path from having success in corporate? I think what you said was spot on because sales is something that I was like introduced to as a career that I could really like take serious. Funny enough, man, even before I left Ohio, man, I met a guy named Keith P that. You know, this guy, he, he and his business partner, uh, I believe Adam Troy might have been his name, but they were worth something, you know, upwards of $350 million, something mm, wow. incredible at, at Black Man. I had never met any Black man that had that type of money, man, ever. And I'm like 19, 18, 19 years old at Ohio State University in a business group. And I had gone to a meeting where I met these guys and I was just like, the guy walked in with a, with a custom suit and a, a freaking metal suitcase, right, to a meeting. I'm sitting here with like baggy pants, Jordans on and a hoodie. He put his suitcase on this table, man, in front of our uh, group. He said, if I would have walked in here with gym shoes on, you had a hard time believing I was a millionaire. I was like, what? It was like a <laughs> boiler room type moment. And like, that was way back in Ohio, man. And he, he gave this crazy presentation that made everybody want to like run through brick walls and take over the world. But one thing that he said that was stuck with me was he said, all this comes down to one thing. And he got out the dry erase marker and went to the whiteboard and he wrote sales. And he says that was the key behind everything, man. And that stuck with me, man. So I knew he planted that seed. It was just like getting the career builder meeting prayers. And like a lot of experiences I had leading up to that point just kept watering and watering and watering it. You know what I'm saying? I think I might have like veered off away from your question just now, Prez. Um, you no, you actually, no, you actually did. I think that was a great story. Just keep going, man, because like I, I like when yeah, it's man. authentic. That was authentic, man. Yeah, man. Right. I think like like so the seed was already there, man, and you were able to see that, and that was the brilliance of you as a as a leader in that space. And I think like what it was was just that I just kept colliding with things that that pulled me away from that vision I had for myself. I got this vision in my mind. This brother was worth three fifty million. What like? With, and he sold sales. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, like, if that's possible, it's like, why am I waiting out here? Like, every time I in- encountered an obstacle that made me think that I wasn't going to be able to continue on a path to lead me to some sort of destination like that, I just felt like I was just, I had to fight that thing off. I had to get it off me, man. That's, that's not, 
that doesn't align with the way I view myself, even though like I might sound like this on the phone and like my quota is way up there and I'm way down here. <laughs> like I feel like see myself as being somebody that's capable of doing it. So it's like as a matter of like self-preservation, I got to I have to I have to pursue the image of myself that I see in my mind. You know what I'm saying? So that's really what Career Builder was, man. It was just a series of like, here's a wall. You're going to climb over it. Or you're going to leave. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Another wall. You're going to climb over it. Okay, you hit your quota. Now your quota is higher the next month. You're going to jump over this wall. Or you're going to leave. And it was just like boot camp, man. You know what I mean? Like, here's a difficult uh, coworker. You're going to like climb over this wall. Or you're going to walk away. Mm-hmm. The whole time I was there, I just kept getting hit. Here's a cultural environment that you're not familiar with. You're going to walk away from this. You're going to overcome this. And I just kept thinking like, all right, you can't say you want to do X, Y, Z in your life and accomplish X, Y, Z, but then you set up a whole lot of contingencies on what you may not be willing to do to achieve it. Mm. You know? So anytime I saw an obstacle, I ran towards it. Cause I was like, on the other side of that obstacle, man, that's, that's where my, that's where my destiny is. That's where I view myself is on the other side of that thing. And a lot of this mentality was fueled by stuff I was reading, feeding myself and people I was talking to in that environment. You know what I mean? It was just an environment that was hostile to mediocrity. So I, I gravitated towards excellence, man. And that's what pulled me pulled me through it. One thing, too, that I wanted the audience to kind of piggyback on what he mentioned earlier in this segment. He talked about the fact that he woke up every morning seeing that, that quote. And I never even knew that you did that. I thought that's brilliant because a lot of people, when they look at their numbers, and it doesn't have to be a sales quota. It could just be anything in life. A lot of people, they run away from the responsibility and what they have to achieve and hit. You face that head on every single day. And I think that that's important. Yeah, man. It was, it was everything for me, man. And just like brainwashing myself with like information, man. Like you find that if you just walk through life and just kind of like let whatever you encounter become a part of who you are, you end up like with what everybody else has, man. And the people I saw doing great, man, they weren't talking like everybody else. They kind of had like this rocket fuel, like in their, in their bloodstream. You know what I'm saying? It was just like these people that just walked around with their back straight. You know what I mean? Like with their head up. With this, you know, uh-huh. Kind of gave a damn about like little stuff that other people don't give a damn about. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they just seemed like they were living in a different like level, man. I wanted all that for my family and me, you know? So Julius, so those are the type of people you was gravi- gravitating to. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. You surrounded yourself with a, a press. Hey, I know how press can get. Press <laughs> is, <laughs> hey, I was sitting there listening to the story. I'm like, hey, press on me too now. So don't, hey, don't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, it's not just you, man. Hey, press, he be on me. <laughs> hey, man, listen, that dude, man, is like, you know, he's going to like, he's he's going to tell you straight. You know what I mean? Like, he's oh, yeah. Straight. Oh, yeah. You and know? we need that. And I tell, I tell press all the time, man, we need you. You know, uh, the type of person he is, I tell him all the time, man, he's he's a definitely a leader out here. And, and he pushes me. And and when you were telling the story, I was like, I know uh, I know Julius was 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 hitting it, was feeling it. But that's what made you uh, better in, uh, in what you was doing in, in sales and stuff. One hundred percent, man. One hundred percent. So it's just like, you know, when you're when you're in a, when you're in an environment. If you're a person that has a certain image of yourself and place you want to go, being around people that have a similar sort of drive and like mentality is so critical. And that is what I got, man. That's what I got. I knew I wasn't going to be there for life or anything like even close to it, but I knew I was in some sort of environment where I had a lot more learning to do. So it was always, you know, it just made sense for me to continue on that path. 
And one thing, too, I want our audience to, when they listen to Julius tell the story, it's less about the fact that, you know, he ran into the obstacles and, and how he, you know, you know, approached those, but it's more about what he did behind the scenes. So while he looked around him and he saw his environment, I think it's really important a lot of times in life for people to pay attention to that environment because he saw a team of performers. He didn't see people that were just going through the motions, right? Right. And so for him, he knew, well, damn, I got an opportunity here and I'm not trying to be the weakest link. Right. I need to step it up. And he did that. The reading of the books to reaching out to mentors. And it sounded like he had mentors Mm -hmm. even before he came through the door. And that's what it takes sometimes in life. If you're trying to get to whatever your desired state is, sometimes in life you have to humble yourself. And we talked about this last week, Jules. You got to humble yourself. If you don't know, then go find it. Go find someone that has that information source. The answer is always out there. It's your job to go out and and get it. Right. Because nobody's going to give it to you. and Nobody's going to give it to you. Right. And there's people in this world who's selfish and don't want to give it to you either. That's a good point. And the one thing that I would just tell you about with Julius, and this is something that I wanted to give him compliments on, is the fact that once he figured out the blueprint and when he started to have success, he didn't hold that inside. He paid it forward to the next person that came on the team, right? So as you remember, he mentioned Tony Parker, who was a, a rep that had been hired three months before him. Tony Parker went through the same experience that Julius went through. Julius just didn't know that. So as I basically put people through the ranks, I knew that our team, we had so much good talent that people were just pilfering it. We we were promoted reps on that team every other month, right? So I knew I was only as strong as my weakest person. So when that new person came up, they had three months to get up and running. So then when Julius came on the team, Tony was that guy. When when Tony leaves the team, now Julius is that guy. Mm -hmm. And now he's paying it forward to the next person. And that was really all I was trying to do with those individuals when they came on. It's like, hey, listen, when you figure this thing out, pay that forward to the next person that's coming behind you. Right. And and Julius took that and he ran with it. And when he had his opportunity to get promoted, he didn't get promoted just one time. He got promoted three separate times in his stint at career building. So now this is an individual that came in here and his passion was the arts. When you talk to him, you knew, hey, this dude, he's a sharp dude. I don't see this guy doing inside and outside sales for the rest of his life. So I always knew with him that this certain position had a shelf life. Julius, I want you to kind of talk through your experience of when you got promoted to the strategic sales roles of kind of like what led you to becoming an entrepreneur, because I think this is going to be a really important story for the audience to to hear. Well, there's a lot to unpack with that. I'm going to try to condense it in a way that like I can get all the important pieces out of it. Um, I think that like the various promotions that I got at Career Builder, they required an increased level of competence commitment and time and fortitude, honestly, because it was just like the stakes were higher. You know, you're dealing with people that the stakes were higher on their end and yours, you know, higher quota. I'm dealing with clients that had like higher, more revenue coming in and so forth. Dealing with clients that had third parties that they were accountable to. And and the the product that you were selling them was a part of the solution that was going to enable them to meet their obligations, you know? So it started becoming a lot more consultative and and that was that was something that was something different because you know nine times out of ten, actually ten times out of ten, you know you were interacting with people that were way more intelligent in terms of business, uh, uh, running their businesses than than you, you know, and you're going in as somebody that's substantially younger than them as well. Um, so it's like, man, okay, now I need to I need to step my game up again. Now you know I'm dealing with people where 
you know, they're, they're experts. They have, you know, money that I would dream of having at one point. What I had to figure out was that as, as smart as they were, I'm the expert in what I'm offering. And so you can't, you know, necessarily take your expertise and assume that you can kind of run over me just because you're an expert in what you're doing. At the end of the day, I'm an expert in what I'm doing. Mr. Mm. It's going to help you reach your destination. Let's talk about where you want to go. Let me hit this. Uh, let me hit this this wagon of your buggy, and let's 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 get there. Let's get there together. You know. So it became just a process of being able to listen to people and 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 allow them to let you know what they want and just plug your solution in instead of trying to like look at it like a almost like an intimidation situation where you should be concerned about how competent somebody is about what they're doing. It's got nothing to do with how good I am with what I'm doing. That exact process just got more and more and more and more intense as I went on through the company. That literally, man, that laid the framework for me to be able to, to start my business. You know, ultimately, like when I ended up leaving Career Builder, I was in a position where I thought that maybe I can go out and find another job. You know, I've got all these skills. And as a matter of fact, I did go out and got a bunch of job offers, some of them paying a lot more, some of them with wanting me to travel a lot more and all this other stuff. But I found out I was kind of interviewing for the same sort of work environment that was actually pulling me away from what I really wanted to be doing. So it was mm. like different environment, but the same sort of work. And I was just one day just sitting in my, in my kitchen. Nook. I'll never forget it. My wife was eight months pregnant with our third. Actually, at this point, my fourth. We have six kids at this point. This dude got a squad over there. I don't miss. That dude, I'll tell you, he's a good brother. I love this dude. (laughs) You know, I'm just sitting around thinking like, shoot, man, I've got, you know, I got this family support. I'm currently without work. I didn't know what I wanted to be doing. So I just kind of like just impulsively just kind of just started doing things I felt like I wanted to do. I had about a month's worth of income to like tie us over. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to waste. But I just kind of just started organically just kind of moving towards things I felt like I kind of wanted to do that drew me in. I'm still applying for jobs all this time, but I was just kind of like, you know what? Like, let me do something creative, you know? And little by little by little by little, like, it was almost like these creative things just like started becoming answers to the problems I had. I'm like, okay, you know what? We need a dresser. I'm not going to go spend money on furniture. I'm in between jobs, but we do need a dresser. Let me get a free one and refinish it. Hey, that looks real nice. And I got a lot of satisfaction out of doing that because it involved a creative process. Hmm, Maybe there's other people that might need things refinished. That came out very nice. You know, my wife liked that dresser. What if I can find other people that might want something refinished? I can get my hands on them for almost free, you know, because we live in Chicago and people throw stuff in the alley in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, you can find a lot of stuff, man. I mean, so I picked up something else, man, refinished it. This time I put it online, you know, using my skills from um, my, my background with, you know, dealing with different art mediums. I was able to take a great photo of it, put it online. I got something like 13 emails for it in an hour. And um, I made $200 on that, you know, and like, this is, you know, really nothing when you come from the environment from a six figure income, you know, you make 200 bucks. I was happier than I've ever been to make that 200. I thought that was, mm. that was amazing. I didn't know I could do that. You know, I, man, I made 200 bucks. Like, and so honestly, that's literally how I got involved with what I'm currently doing. I just started. I just started, man. I was just, I had a need, you know, I had a family. We needed income. I got satisfaction out of doing it found a creative outlet. It ended up being something I could make money with. And I just started that first piece for $200 became hundreds of pieces after it. You know, I was selling 
I don't know, 20 to 25 pieces a month. Crazy as that sounds, I was like buying, refinishing and flipping a piece every, almost every single day. Wow. Working out of my condo at the time, literally out of my condo, out of my kitchen nook. I turned that little kitchen nook into a, a wood shop. It's just crazy to even talk about it. I mean, I'm talking about like a 10 by 12 little bitty room, like making like a refinishing furniture, sawdust floating out of the kitchen nook into the kitchen, getting on the dishes in the sink. <laughs> like, it was a mess. People would, I would post these beautiful pictures online. People were amazed. Oh my God, I got everybody fighting over these photos. People show up to my house. They didn't know it was my house when they saw the photo. They think I'm a, some big time furniture guy with a showroom downtown. They show up, they see like all these kids running around, jumping on the couches. and <laughs> Like I'm flying through a lot of information, but it was just, it was a fast time. As fast as I'm explaining it, that's as fast as it felt. Because you understand, like I had like a mortgage at this point. You know what I mean? I had car notes, I had insurance. I had three kids and a wife that was at home not working. She was a homemaker. You know what I mean? Like I had, I had to run, man. As soon as the idea came in my head, I was immediately out the door taking action. Boom, let's go. Take the suits off, put them in the mm-hmm. closet, get some dirty clothes on, go ride through every alley in Chicago. Oh, there's a piece I might be able to flip it. Finish it up, boom, 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 boom. Take a quick picture, put it online, sell it, drop it off. Do the same thing the next day. And the whole time I had headphones on, look at listen to positive, like motivational speakers. Yep. I got off social media. You couldn't even call me. I got rid of my cell phone. Wow. Because I didn't want to deal with the pressure of everybody asking, hey, Julius, what happened? Julius, what happened? You okay? You okay? Mm-hmm. You okay? Yep. Really, I got fired from Career Builder. I got fired from the position I was in. They offered me a lateral position that would have enabled me to make basically the same thing. But at that point, I saw it as an out. And I just took my chance and took the leap. And so I, didn't, I had a barrage of people trying to get in touch with me to the point where I just got rid of my cell phone and just like shut off everybody, put on my blinders and just like brainwash myself for what I was trying to do. Um, and it was the same thing like when I started with Chris on the team, except now I was off my own trying to figure it out. You know, and it took me probably three months of like really just like complete isolation, working 18 hour days, not talking to literally anybody. For the first year I was doing it, every day I was in my mind afraid, like, are we going to start today? Okay, maybe not today. Maybe we start tomorrow. Are we going to start tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, and I wasn't taking any phone calls from anybody. You had to call my wife to get in touch with me. And most people didn't know my wife's number. Everybody oh. still thought I worked mm-hmm. at Career except people that actually worked there, even my family. It was crazy, man. I remember that Julius, because uh, we he, we got one of his pieces when we could actually afford. Because we we can't if he's out of our price range now. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> damn. But I, I, what I wanted our audience to listen to with what Julius said there, because he gave a lot of information there, and it was amazing. The first piece of information is the fact that that first two hundred dollars that you made, and how you were proud of that. This man was getting five ten thousand dollar commission checks. But that $200, you know why it felt good to him? It's because that was all him from start to that finish. Was all him. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%, man. It was like, I didn't know that. I just, I don't know, man. Like, I just, it just thought it was crazy that I could, like, I can make something and, like, put it out there to sell. And I sold things before, but it was like, I've created this thing, you know? Like, man, there's so much to unpack with this. Like, I mean, what I'm, what I ended up doing after a couple hundred pieces, man, I don't know how many hundreds of pieces I refinished. I got to the point where I just decided to start making things. And it was a whole nother learning curve. Okay, well, if I've made all these things, I can easily see how they are taking it, you know, how, you, how they're put together. Okay, why don't you start making it? Why don't you start a product line? One of the guys that used to be on Prez's team, Sergio Burke, he said, yeah, man, eventually, man, you get your own product line. He was one of the few people I let in, you know, yeah. after I kind of made that transition. Prez, I let him in. Uh, Sergio was in. A few people were in. People that 
understood what I was dealing with, you know, they understood, I let them in. And Sergio said, hey man, eventually you get your own product line, you don't have to go run around grabbing these things. I said, damn, he's right. Yep. You no, know, I said, okay, let me figure out how to build this stuff. And I started building it. And then like, this is crazy, you know, like it's crazy to think about how that transition happened, but it just happened, you know, next thing you know, I'm in a, I'm lease my own wood shop. Then I'm getting, you know, then I'm getting sales all over the country. You know, I'm shipping stuff all over the country now. I'm getting oh, commercial wow. now. I'm getting, Beautiful. I'm making wow. now like pieces that might sell for what would be equivalent to what I might make in, in multiple months, you know, like mm. in my past, you know, like it's a crazy thing, but it just started with looking at life as a series of problems to solve. And it turns out when you solve problems, you make money. The bigger the problem you solve, the more problems you solve, the more money you make. So it was like all the stuff that used to be kind of a, oh shit type moment. Oh man, I need to go find help. Then I started looking at it like, no, I got this. Let me solve that now. Let me solve my problem. Let me solve everybody else that has the same problem. I started off needing some furniture I couldn't afford. A lot of other people needed it. I just solved a whole bunch of problems, you know? And that was that. It was really that simple. It's just like a different mentality. You know what I mean? Like the whole transitioning from the mailbox mentality, waiting for the check to pop up in the mail. Do, 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 mm. do. It's not secure. This comes from somebody else's bank account. Just because somebody else is writing you a check doesn't mean it's going to be there tomorrow. You know, everybody on this uh, listening to this podcast has been themselves or knows somebody has been fired. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like the concept yes, like security in a job is something I found out was very false when I found myself unemployed with a wife eight months pregnant, you know, like that's, I'm like, yo, I'm not putting myself in this position. And it's not to say anything negative about working a nine to five because that experience was everything for me. You know what I mean? Everything. It, I could never take that uh, experience um, and say anything negative about it because it gave me the skill set that I needed to go do my own thing, you know? But, like, but, that pivot that you made from the nine to five to what you're doing now. I think that's an important lesson because there's a lot of people out here, Julius, that probably feel the same way you feel about their corporate job or whatever they're doing. Right. And they're not making any sort of action and their future is predicated upon somebody else writing a check for them. And for you every month, Mm -hmm. you write yourself a blank check. So what you go out there and eat, is what you go out there and, and basically hunt and, and, and bring down. <laughs> man, and it's like, look, man, it's just like, it's a, it's a, it's a thrill. It's an adrenaline rush. You know, it's like every day I'm like, I'm in the wild. I feel like I get to go out here and, you know, make it happen. There's no, there's no complaining here. There's no excuses here, man. You better go get busy. Go get busy. Go get up off your ass and go get it. Uh-huh. Like, like, look, man, you want to do something better, man? You can't blame your manager now, man. You got to, you know, can't blame Fred. Man, Fred is too tough on me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, man. You got to go out here and, and make it happen. That's an adrenaline rush. And the confidence that comes with that, I can tell you, I don't even know. If, if I went bankrupt doing this, I would do it again. Because the confidence that I wow. got. Confidence and enjoyment. I could mm-hmm. take it and do whatever else now. I can't, certain certain things you can't put a price tag on, you know? That's, uh-huh. that's right. Uh-huh. I can walk away from this and be okay with it and make something else. That's exactly what I would do. Dude. Something else, you know? Dude, Julius, man, dude, that is powerful, man, because what you talking about being fired from career building, like like Prez said, getting those commission checks, $1,000 worth of commission checks to getting fired stuff but you getting fired is a catalyst and, and for profound profound reinvention like right. using your art to make these furnitures by the way i'm looking at these furnitures these furniture pieces are badass my brother man. You, man you know what i want to know 
tell a person about how do you come up with the name Chicago Fire Furniture? Chicago Fire Furniture was basically um, born out of a the way I was running my my art my art studio practice before I got into this. While I was a career builder, and all these years, I was I was um, on the back end. I was still maintaining a studio practice, doing um, paintings and drawings of basically. Mm-hmm portraiture and then like disheveled landscapes. I did a lot of um, photo photography around the city, photographing disheveled buildings. And I would collage my photographs together and make these post-apocalyptic looking like landscape scenes from an urban environment. And I went to Detroit to visit my grandmother because she was somebody that, you know, we grew up with. We'd always go to Detroit and she was from Detroit. We would go there every year. And during undergrad one year, this was around you know what? I might've been under, out of undergrad. This was after the subprime mess. Detroit was like, you know, approaching bankruptcy. Yep. It was kind of falling apart. I went out there and did a bunch of like photography, like documentary work. And I was really blown away by the aesthetic of the charred buildings because I was actually like photographing buildings out there. And on one particular building, I photographed it. And there was a little girl that pulled back the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> y'all, see what, y'all see what he did there. <laughs> hey, 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 thanks, and Julius. <laughs> no kind of pull back. He pulled back the curtain. I'm thinking I'm photographing an abandoned building, but it turns out this a family, a little girl. I'm literally holding the camera up to my eye, looking at this building, and I see this little girl pull back the curtain. I'm just like stunned, like wow, like it's a little girl living out here in this a place that looks like it's it's abandoned. She had a whole you know, life in there. And that was her world. And I was just, wow, it just stunned me. It was all the, all the, and my brain started, you know, running crazy and all these like thoughts and like all the, the symbolism behind that and the metaphor that came out of seeing that, you know what I mean? Like life happening within something that looks like, you know, there may not be something happening from the outside. And I took that and it just stayed in the back of my mind. And when I started doing furniture, I actually started experimenting with a blowtorch and during that process, a lot of the memory from those charred buildings and that experience with that little girl came back to me. So I named it Chicago Fire Furniture as a reference to that experience and how it impacted the way I want to approach taking something that is, you know, fire that can literally like obliterate things and then like bringing something of life out of it. You know what I mean? It's a metaphor of how I think about making art and making like furniture. Like Jules said, his furniture pieces, I can attest for him, are amazing. And I, we were rocking with him back in the day when he was doing deliveries. So he he brought that mug over here. I remember he helped us bring it in. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that I wanted before you get out of here, uh, Julius, uh, tell our audience, you know, about your website, different product lines, and also too how they can find you on social because I know there's a lot of people out here that really could benefit mm-hmm. from col- uh, collaborating with you on some sort of uh, artwork. Absolutely, man. The website is ChicagoFireFurniture.com. Um, at chicagofirefurniture.com and on Instagram you can find me at at firefurniture at firefurniture I typically work through email if you go to the website you don't see any prices on it partially that's because a lot of the op, the, the things on there end up being typically people see something and then they may they ask for either specifically that or a variation of it and so shoot me a, D, a, a message through the website. If you have any questions, you can also DM me through Instagram myself or my assistant will get back to you. That's the main two platforms, the website and Instagram. You got some recognition in 2019 for the artwork. Yes. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was really humbled, man. Um, Chicago magazine reached out to me and they wanted to do an interview, which they did came by the shop. And I actually was, was voted best of Chicago in their, in their category. 
for furniture. So I was, man, that was fantastic. Humble by all the experiences I've had, man. Just, you know, it's been a great run. Chicago's a city that will allow you to, it'll give you a shot as long as you like meet it halfway and like put in the work. Yeah, you have. And you still got the running shoes on because last year was uh, not easy for you during the pandemic with the business, but then you pivoted in 2020. Had to make the pivot, man. Like sales completely dried up. When you lose 40% in your 401k, it's tough to justify buying a, a new dining table. And so a lot of the sales completely stopped, you know, literally did, literally, like you said, prayers, got out and running shoes, man, got some new business cards made, was running around Chicago and Oak Park, you know, like passing business cards out on the front porch for using my woodworking skills to do a new business for more home repair oriented, construction oriented projects. And honestly, man, that ended up taking off to the point where it almost eclipsed my previous revenue from Chicago Fire Furniture, man. But it was just one of those crazy pivots like, okay, shoot, I'm back. I'm back at a career builder with prayers again, man. How do I adjust to this environment. It's like you just get busy. It's just like you just start looking at problems like opportunities, you know, like one thing drives up, one revenue stream dries up, one customer goes out of business. Okay. So you go to the next customer. You just, you know, you don't hear no anymore. You hear like not now, or you hear like next door or next play. You know what I mean? You just keep it moving. And that's what happened, man. So now I've got those two streams coming through. I think it's just about continuing to solve problems and continuing to like run through barriers and not like letting it intimidate you. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the lesson I've learned through this. Yeah, man. And I think that's a phenomenal lesson. And I think that's the kind of where I want to kind of just make sure that people are kind of listening to that. While he basically have let us know that it's been a series of problems that he's looked to not only solve personally, but for others. So if you look at his situation starting to career builder, that job was all about solving people's problems. Right. But indirectly, he was solving the problem for his household and his family and being mm-hmm. able to provide. And now you fast forward to today with Chicago Fire Furniture, it all evolved from him trying to solve a problem. What the common denominator is, he was trying to solve a problem for his family. And I say that it's important in life for everybody to figure out what your why is. Once you identify what that why is, the rest should be able to take off. Beautiful, man. (laughs) Ain't nothing to say after that, brother. (laughs) Well, Julius, man, I appreciate you, man. Love you to death. Thank you so much and do really, really respect the work that you're doing out here and helping to make Chicago beautiful, bro. So I appreciate everything that you're doing out here. Hey, brother, I appreciate you. Love you as well, man. I'm, I'm humbled by being asked to be a part of this program. Man, you guys are killing it. Um, you know, I'm sure you're going to continue to do that. You. And you can count on me tuning in, man. Man, I appreciate you, brother. Oh, appreciate you, man. Good, Good meet you, Julius, man. Like Good brother, man. Hey man, I'm hey look out, hey look out. I'm gonna grab one of them tables for me, that high park table. I'm looking at man, it look pretty dope. So, hey, so man. but uh, I'm gonna use uh, I'm gonna use Prez uh, card. He got that black. Hey, that's the reason why. Jules sound like my family right now. Talking about you ain't getting no prices on there. There's another reason you get no prices on there now. Hey man, hey, hey, I'm glad. We'll gladly, gladly take that card, man. Bring it by, man. Let's talk. Oh yeah, yes sir. <laughs> oh dear, run that thing up on me, boy. <laughs> All right, brother, man. Thanks so much for coming on, brother. Appreciate you, brother. Man, Jules, that was a really, really, really <laughs> dope episode with, with my brother Julius mm-hmm. Dorsey. He, he a cool brother, man. 
Real cool. And, and the thing about it is, man, I just hope that our audience just listen to those stories, man, because this is just a humble, real guy, man. And in and, and essence of when I met him, he's the same person that he is today. So even though he's having so much success with his business, getting national you know, publications writing about him, mm-hmm. he's still the same dude. Man, and that's that's something because a lot of times people say, man, you check a man's character, give him power, man. This dude still remain humble, his wife and kids and stuff on the way, not making money and then getting fired. And then he just kept moving and he just he went and he went back to his passion, he went back to art, you yep. know, which set him on the on, put him on the map there. And you know, for most of us, you know, when you started off, I mean, those those things, hey, you gotta push through it. Like he talking about them obstacles. Okay, you got this wall, you jump over it, there's another one. Then then there's another one. Then you you reach this hill, then you gotta hire some. Man, dude, that's all good stuff. All good stuff. Man, so yes, yeah, so audience, man, we appreciate you guys for tuning in with us. As we mentioned, this is gonna be this was the second part of our discussion on career transitions. And for next month, we're gonna start kicking off some content that's gonna be black history related. So Jules and I are gonna be having some really good discussions that we're gonna have set up for you guys. So we definitely uh, appreciate the continued support and we are out. Gonna hit him with that curtain call, bro. All right, this curtain call goes out to new me. New me is an entrepreneurship educational program that work with early stage business founders and through their team through mentorship, specialized curriculums, and capital investment. Their program enables founders to completely reevaluate product, sales, and marketing strategies, prepare for investment pitches, and connect to a network of partners. As the first underrepresented founder-focused program in the United States, Numi has led founders to more than $47 million in funding. President I am pulling back the curtain podcast family. Would like to say thank you and appreciate all, all your hard work. Hey, I appreciate that curtain call, Jules. As always, you can find this podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. We appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Without you, we wouldn't be. We're the Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast. Thanks for listening. Peace.